Good morning again. Uh, we are starting a new series. Our passage this morning is in 1 Peter. If you have a way to get to that in an app or a, hopefully a Bible uh, or on our screen, we'll, we'll be looking. At, really, it's verses 1 to 25 is the teaching, but we're going to highlight portions of that text. And what we're doing in this new year, we're starting a six-part series on the topic of holiness. Um, we're going to be looking at six of the most formative New Testament passages dealing with that, what it means to be a Christian. I remember in seminary, uh, there are 21 Presbyterian PCA churches in St. Louis. We didn't make it to all of them. But one of those churches we were visiting, the pastor had a southern accent. And in his sermon, he said, holiness is happiness. And he said it three times. And it was hard for some reason, that, and maybe you feel this way, like that felt heavy. And I think he meant it to be really refreshing. What he meant by holiness is happiness is when we are following God's laws, God's plans, we flourish. There's flourishing. But what I heard incorrectly because of the way I needed to have more sanctification and still do is until I have it down pat, until I am holy, I will not be happy. And that's not what he meant. That's not what we mean. So we're going to look into this series of what does holiness even mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? That is the Latin for, term for holiness, sanctification. What does it look like? What do Christians do to do that? Uh, if you got the email this week, you noticed I put a uh, kind of this is the, the, the scripture I'm kind of building off of from 1 Timothy 4, 6, on, um, where Paul says this, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. I've, I've been at CrossFit before, and I've been watching my numbers and trying to do stuff and training and thinking, do I do this with my spiritual life? And I think I want to know. Paul is saying it's okay to be physically training. He spent years in Corinth where they had the isthmus, isth, ah, the games, the Olympic games, but not quite the Olympics, like the next step down. Um, so training was something he talks about. Be like a, an athlete, be like a farmer, be like a warrior. These are things Paul holds dearly, but godliness is where our focus needs to be. What is your plan? What is your goal? How are we training for that? That's what we're going to talk about. And um, I want us to know two things in this series and this morning. The goal is to be transformed into the person we were always meant to be. Okay, so when we image God and how we live, we will flourish. That's one of our goals to understand that. When we image God and how we live, we will flourish. Secondly, God's the one who ultimately brings that about. So we're going to look at those two things throughout the series. A background on this passage. I actually, actually did an exegetical paper on, on this uh, passage, which is very dangerous when I was, in, you know, I was in seminary, because you tend to get crazy and do crazy things. Thankfully, I'd never even looked at it when I prepared this sermon just had a few things that came to mind. But um, this passage, theologians have talked about really how Peter is, is talking about we're, we're the new Jerusalem, we're the new Israel. Christianity, the church, we are imaging the exile here in the Exodus. Not the exile, the Exodus. And so Peter is using a lot of language from how you saw the, the Israelites leave Egypt across the Red Sea and go into a season in the desert. A lot of that has the, the, the background of our very passage. Peter is saying Christianity is a lot like that. We're exiles. We're not in heaven, but we're not in captivity anymore. 
We've passed through the Red Sea. He uses some of that language. He uh, talks later in, the, in this passage about being holy, using some of the same language we see at Sinai. So we're going to read the passage together and then dive in and see what it means to be holy. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, hear the words, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to, and here's a Trinitarian formula, the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I want you to hear now in the next verses, he's telling us what is true of ourselves. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm now going to jump to verse 13. He's transitioning from what is true of us, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at some of those verses I've passed over in a little while, but here are these verses in 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And then verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you have rescued us from our former ignorance and enslavement, and you've brought us, Lord, into your kingdom. You've indwelt us with your Holy Spirit. You've applied all the blessings of Christ. And Lord, we long to be in heaven. We long to be with you. But if we're honest, Father, so often this world is distracting, it's alluring, it's um, intoxicating, and we need to see you. Show us you this morning, that we may find you to be the most intoxicating. In your name we pray. Amen. Recently, uh, really just flipping channels, there's only like several that matter anymore, but um, we find this TV show called Making It. Anybody seen Making It? Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman from Parks and Recreation, they're the, they're the host and hostess, and they have these contestants who come on and they make things. And so there's like a challenge, and the, the people listen to the challenge, and then when the clock starts, they start making something, which is really intimidating to me, because I would be like, huh? 
So the first one we came to was making sheds. You know what a she shed is? It's sort of like that. I, I get a little offended because I like those sheds too. But nonetheless, they take a shed that's just basic and boring, and then each creator or maker goes in and does a lot of work to make it beautiful, and they have people helping them cut out holes and making whatever they need to do. It's beautiful. And what they end with, what they end up with were these, each contestant, I think there were four left at that point in the, in the series, four amazing like sheds that you would love to have in your backyard. Furthermore, as they showed the judges these sheds, they began to explain why they did it, and you start to hear that each of them kind of had their own unique background. Like, oh, well, I have a background in making fabrics and doing this, so I did this here. And pretty soon you realize that shed looks like the person who made it. Right. We are those sheds. God is in the business of remaking us. And we will image him. And it's a beautiful thing. Schaefer refers to Christians as glorious ruins. What he means is, though there is the fall, though there is the ruin, there is something glorious, a thumbprint about each one of you. And God wants to remake you and rebuild you. So God, who's the ultimate maker, is making us into a glorious version of ourself. That's, that's what holiness means. I want that to begin to be what you hear and not the hard work, the drudgery. The bo- it's, it's glory. You will be the best version of yourself, and God is doing this. And so we're going to look at that, this series in this morning. But first of all, we're going to talk about what is holiness. Point number one, what is holiness? When you get to the place toward the end of this passage, Peter says a lot what I heard the, the man say in St. Louis. God says, be holy for I am holy. So the question you have to start with is, what does that mean, holiness? Often people know the answer partially. They'll say, well, it means to be set apart. Have you heard that before? To be holy is to be set apart. In fact, in the Old Testament, as well, it's applied to the, the things used for worship, the, the instruments that are going to be used for sacred worship. So to be set apart. Many have taken that further to mean, oh, it means to be set apart from sin, which of course it does. But you have to ask, what does it mean in its original beginning? To have a good theology of holiness, you can't start with the fall and sin because God was holy before sin, right? So if God is holy before there's sin, it has to be something more than just being set apart from sin because it didn't exist yet. So Ferguson, one of the guys I'm looking at, Sinclair Ferguson, in part of the series, talks about holiness. He says, we talk about a holy father, holy son, a holy spirit, a holy trinity. He says, we mean there's this perfect devotion of each of these three persons to one another that really resembles the Bible's teaching on marriage, devotion and honor and and loving and the irreversibility, the pureness that before time began, there was this Trinitarian Yahweh God, who still is the Trinitarian Yahweh God, who always loved. Now, I'm reading another book that I highly, if you're going to buy any book from my series that I'm talking, this is the one I want you to get, and Shane's the one that turned me on to this, Delighting in the Trinity. It is an excellent book. Short, theological, but very practical. And the author of Delighting in the Trinity talks about how for God the Son to be the Son, he always had to be a son. And for God the Father 
to be a father. He always had to be a father, a loving father who delighted in loving the son. And so when we come to the Trinity, we have to see it in the term of intimacy and marriage. Think about a, a, a groom watching as the bride comes in the, win- the door, not the window, because that'd be really weird. <laughs> I challenge one of you young people to try that. Coming into the sanctuary, and the groom is, you know, as a pastor, you see it firsthand. You see the eyes meeting the bride and the bride walking down the aisle. I think another good image is the image of a mom holding her newborn baby. Just the attunement, the look, different than every other person who holds the baby. The mother looks differently at that child's face. And that child learns to look differently at that mother's face. That is what Trinitarian intimacy is. And holiness means something far more than we've ever understood. One of the classic Bible passages on holiness comes from Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has come into the throne room of God, whether by vision, we aren't, it's very hard to understand, but he's seeing the triune God, and he's seeing the angels covering their eyes saying, holy, holy, holy. And it's just the glory of God. And the very first words out of his mouth are, woe is me. And I've wondered about that, that response many times. It's more than just, I'm a sinner, though it's that. It's more of everything I've ever known fails in comparison to that glory. Have you ever had the perfect meal? Dan recently made, it was a beef prime rib. He made a beef prime rib, um, and it was just delicious. And Brian Larson had some beef prime rib and said, Dan, you've ruined beef prime ribs everywhere else because I've had your beef prime rib. And his point is, am I saying that right? Have you ever had a meal? Have you ever had an experience? Young people, you fall in love and nothing else matters. You've come into contact with glory, with holiness. So here's Isaiah in the throne room of God. He sees God and he's he's saying, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. All the words I've used to try to express your glory are wasted. They're rubbish. You see something like that with Paul, right? When Paul's like, all my things that I cared, counted as glorious in Philippians 3 are rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Glory, holiness. It's beautiful. I think so often we, we run after so many things and we're trying to get to something, get to that glory, get to that thing, and it just disappears like Shane's children's boxes. You know, the the toys lose their luster and now we need the box. And then the box tears apart. We need the next thing. And God is saying, hey, I'm the headwaters. Like, I'm the source. I am the source of glory, of holiness. And if you come into my presence, you will be satisfied. That's the hope. I'm just trying to get you to understand that mentally right now. We'll hopefully get there in our hearts as we go along this series But the second thought I want to have is the fact that Peter doesn't just say God is holy, but in restating Leviticus and other Old Testament passages, he's saying you're to be holy. In verse 15, as he who is holy, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is heavy. 
But I want you to hear what, hap- what God is doing there, what Peter is doing. Anytime a father does something amazing, what does the child say? Like, I want to know how to do that. Or anytime you go somewhere, you have like a great meal, what do you ask for? The recipe. I want to create that. It's human nature to be like what you love, right? So it's actually the most gracious thing in the world for the God of the universe to not say, I am holy, serve me, and be small. He says, become a son. Become a daughter. Be like me. Come and have attributes that I have. Share in my joy. There's nothing greater than a God who would give us his own attributes, is there? Have you, and then coming back to this idea of the definition then of holiness as um, being set apart. If you ever walk into a restaurant and you see like a table which says reserved, do you ever think those poor people? No. You're like, who are they? Right? Who gets that table? Who gets the front row? Like, look, we've reserved this front row. We'll never know who gets it. Bonnie gets it. A table is reserved for someone important. Holiness us being set apart as children of God means we are favored. We are the ones it's been reserved for. It's not this metallic, hard thing. I want you to hear how Ferguson talks about it. He says, holiness puts back into our lives the attractiveness of personal character for which humans were originally created, but which has been so badly marred. I'm going to read that again. Holiness, that is our imaging God's holiness, puts back into our lives the attractiveness of personal character for which humans were originally created. Have you ever heard of someone said they're holier than thou? Like, I want to have a conversation with someone that's holier than thou. Because they will listen very, very well. And they will care about me. And they will say, can I pray for you? And can I serve you? Can I help you? We've turned it into a negative. To be holy, to be like God is beautiful. And you'll know you're like that because people will want to be around you. You'll be salt and light. We see this in a famous letter written maybe around 130, 200, uh, the epistle or the letter of Diognetus. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, I'm going to read some, ex- some just, I can't read the whole letter, but listen to how this person is describing the Christians in a time where Christianity was not legal. There were still seasons of martyrdom. It had not become the, the state religion yet. He says, they do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to clothing and food and in the manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whatever is, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full roles as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. The transformation of a pagan culture as the Christians were becoming holy and infiltrated by the beauty of the gospel. He goes on, they live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. 
They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. And he goes on. He's describing a religion that feels very different than the Christianity I think we experience today. And I will be the first to say it about myself. Are we the people who've just blended so much into the culture that we've disappeared completely? Is there anything different about us? I find that modern Christians either try to be different by dressing and doing everything different, which is not what we see in this letter, or by just so blending in that there's really nothing appealing. And yet the gospel and what this own letter describes is a people who will come in and change the world. One person at a time, one church at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one business at a time. So what is your goal? That's the title of this sermon. What's the goal? When you think about your goal, your life plan, your goal for 2020, like where are you with godliness? Is it one of your desires? Next week we'll pick up with, I love to do that joke. It's heavy. Do you feel the weight? There's a lot of weight. But how do we become holy? That's what we're going to spend most of our time on in this series. Something I want to introduce you to, many of you know this already, but the world and the Bible approach self-improvement radically different. Um, The world begins with what you're supposed to do. If you do, you know, on it's funny how Facebook is so full. You get this like five five steps to this, seven steps to that. Have you all received any of those? That's your imperative. Do these seven things to become, and then it gives you the indicative. This is a grammar lesson. The indicative verb form is just simply an I am. What is true? What is defining? The imperative is your go do this. Go love your neighbor. Go read your Bible. The imperatives, right? The Bible reverses that. If, you, if I were to ask you, where in the Bible are the most, is the most famous imperatives, you would say the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments, right? In the beginning of the Bible, Moses, three reached Sinai. God says, here are the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt, and he gives ten, ten words. But just before that, what does God do? If you do these ten things, I might like you. If you do these ten things, you'll be my people. no. I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of Israel, I've, or out of Egypt. I've rescued you. I'm, you know, I'm, there's a relational reality. You're my people. I'm your God. Now here's what we're to do, the commandments. The Bible does that all the way through and through, but we don't. It's in our very DNA to start with the imperatives. If I would just lose 20 pounds, if I would just get more this, if I could just figure that out, imperatives, imperatives, we drive it on ourselves. I will be the indicative. I'll be happy. I'll be fulfilled. Even in Christians, if I just memorize, if I just read, if I just whatever, I'll be over here, this indicative. I'll be better. God will love me more. I'll fit in better at my church or my group. Let's look at our passage Starting in verse 3, and we use it as an assurance of pardon. 
Peter is giving the indicatives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. I didn't read these verses, but hear them now. Though for a little while, if it's necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more, that is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Peter is saying, you have these truths. You, this is true of you. It is completely backwards. And if you want to grow in holiness, we have to start there. We have to start with what is true before you feel it, before there's evidence, before others say, hey, I've noticed that you have an inheritance. You look different today. No, that's not going to happen. You believe it by faith before it happens. I mean, before the results of it happen. Does that make sense? Now, let's get to the imperative part. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Those are not imperatives. Those are participles. That is now, those verbs that have a noun adjectival effect describing, the, waiting for the imperative. So if you're a Greek nerd and you're trying to find the imperative in these places, you know what it is? El pisate. Hope. There is your imperative. Hope. Now, the translation we have said, that I'm reading from says, set your hope. Because it's really hard to kind of shout at somebody, hope. Hope. Isn't that amazing? The imperative in this passage is hope in Christ. Set your hope fully on Christ. What are you setting your hope in? I think there are four places we set our hope, and, and, and these are the things that we do to try to um, feel better about ourselves. These are the things we hope in, right? There's four things I'm going to outline. We'll talk about them as we go through the series. One is what you have. The things I have, that, that, that's something I, I think will define me. The other one would be things you do, achievements, your resume, what kind of resume you proverbially hand to people as you get to know them. A third one's reputation. How do people see you? So who are you really in the eyes of your community? And a fourth one that's very important to think about is just how you feel. Those four things are often what we use to identify how we're doing, right? And so the things we find ourselves doing are trying to achieve those indicatives. Do you hear what I'm saying? The imperatives of what I'm doing Right now, I'm busying myself as trying to achieve one or some number of all those four things. What I have, what I do, who I appear to be with others, and my feelings, how I feel about myself, how I'm, how I'm feeling. Happiness, excited, whatever. If we could notice that, if we could begin to be aware of that, 
and then go to the scripture and have these indicatives be what we, what we focus on and what is true of us, I think those four things might melt away. There's a great book called The Expulsive um, Power of a New Affection. And what we're talking about is the affections of the heart. That is, what is it that gets your heart moving? What is it you're drawn to? Where are your desires? And Thomas Chalmers says this, our problem is that our lives are guided and controlled by the world. That is, what can we do, resolve to do better, or try to convince ourselves that the world is not really giving us? And these are the things that create our, our um, affections. And most of the time, we have an affection. Let's say our affection is toward reputation. Our affection is toward what I have. Our, my affection is toward what I do. Most of the time, we say, get rid of that. Remove that. Stop that. He says, no, you have to replace it with something bigger, something better. Right? That's what we saw with Isaiah 6. Isaiah doesn't go, I'm going to quit doing that. He sees God in the, on his throne. That's the new affection. Immediately, everything else fails. The same is true when you get a new hobby. You get a new hobby and all other things fail. You get a new love. Young people, you fall in love. All other previous loves fall away, right? A new affection. So he goes on to say, we cannot choose what we love, but always love what seems desirable, Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable, more lovely. And he says, until we see that Christ is better, all these other affections are going to take over and they're going to buy for our attention. And so I want to just come to a conclusion. I have no long idea how long I've gone. Does anyone know since the timer? Oh, I've got a green light, 29 minutes. I hate that. I'm so sorry. I'm still getting used to this after four years. Here's how I want to bring this to, 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 to end. Uh, sumo wrestling. I lived in Japan for a year. The last sport I cared about was sumo wrestling. Now, in America, that's NASCAR, okay? Um, here's my NASCAR thought. I know it has to be amazing because so many people like it. So I bet you if I got into it, I'd like it, okay? I believe that to be true. I watch Days of Thunder. And so for a short season, I like NASCAR. Uh, okay. Fast forward to being in Japan, have a, we have a missionary friend, she's like, sumo's amazing, and I'm going, what, sumo, the big guys, you know, the, the more she explained it, the more I watched it, the more intricacies I found out about it, guess what happened? I began to love sumo. Like, it's absolutely riveting as a sport. You could, you could become a crazy sumo wrestling fan. It can happen to you, but it's not going to happen if I give you a book on how to do it. It's going to happen by going to sumo meets, to watching it on TV, to being with fans. A new affection will come through those means. So how do you do it with Jesus? How do we become more excited about God and about Jesus and about glory and about him? We begin to worship him. We come to church. We worship. We, we come privately before his scripture. And we, I do think it's important to note the things that are vying for our attention, those other things I talked about, the things I have, the things I do, these other things. But you come to Psalm 27, and this, is, this would be like maybe even a homework song. Meditate on this this week. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, 
my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble, stumble. And listen to what he says. One thing I have, one thing I seek, is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You read words like that. You come back to 1 Peter. You read these indicatives that I have an inheritance in heaven. You begin to pray, Lord, help me to believe this is true. You confess, Lord, I'm struggling to care about this truth. Lord, I am so caught up in what so-and-so thinks about me. I'm not delighting in the indicatives that you've given me. And as you begin to enter that worshipful phase, privately, corporately, in small groups, your hearts and your affections will change and you'll find the expulsion of the other affections. If sumo wrestling can become amazing to this kid from Oklahoma, the God of glory, the triune God who is, sits on his throne, who says, I want to make you like me, can make you holy and give you new affections. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next five more weeks. I'll be praying for you. I do want to just say practically, it's the first Sunday of a new year. You have to create space for this. So I'm going to get really legalistic, right? You need to have a quiet time. Did I just say that? Here's all I mean. Like, if you want to get healthy, you join a gym. You show up to the gym, right? I mean, that's kind of like obvious. We get into Christianity, oh, you're being too strict. I just want to hear these words and go away and forget they ever existed. Maybe set up 20 minutes, a few mornings where you open the Bible. If you already read the Bible, if you already extend where you are. Start with where you are and develop a plan. Knowing that you're already loved in Christ, knowing that you're not going to get more favor from God, it's going to be feeding you. The meal is there. So just begin to pray, Lord, how might I train for godliness based on these truths? I'll be praying that for you and for myself. Let's pray now. Jesus, we, we know the truth. We believe the truth that you are glorious. But we're, if we're honest, just so often our focus and our attention is aimed elsewhere. My goal this morning for my heart and for the hearts of my dear brothers and sisters, Lord, is that we might, in our mind, begin to and continue to believe that if we were to see you in your throne room, of course, couched in the rock of Jesus so that we would not melt, Lord, we would fall on our knees in worship. We would, everything would pale in comparison to you. So, Lord, now I pray as those who don't see you that way like Isaiah did, but we have your spirit, I pray we would use the means you've given us. And as we go into a new year, Lord, I pray we will take very seriously our training to walk with you, to begin to read your scripture, to know your word, to meditate, to pray, to have fellowship. Lord, when we come in, this, in a few moments to take your meal, this Lord's Supper that you've left us, that our hearts would be engaged to really believe in the truths that we proclaim. Holy Spirit, make it so. Amen.